Hello and welcome to the British Elections Podcast. This episode is episode one on the series on the British general election of 1950. I've already recorded two introductory episodes and those were about politics in the 1930s and 1940s and those were in order to set the scene. Uh, But today's episode is uh, pretty exciting because it's pretty much the start, if you like, of the podcast proper. And uh, so I'm going to tell you the story of classic British general elections. I'm going to start with elections in the 1950s. And uh, as it happens, we're right at the beginning of 1950 itself. Two months into it, on the 23rd of February 1950, we have the first of four general elections in the 1950s. This episode explores the opening manoeuvres of this 1950 election. Um, So I'm going to start at the beginning of the year. Um, as the dust settles on the devaluation, which happened in November 1949, and as the government prepares to announce an election date, uh, we're going to be looking at the context of what was happening in the lead-up to the announcement, and uh, the second half of the episode is going to look at the who's who of the Labour leadership. I'm going to do the same thing for the Conservatives in the next episode. So I do hope you enjoy it, and uh, off we go. So, the New Year began with the very British tradition of the New Year's Honours List, news of which hit the press on the 2nd of January. Uh, His Britannic Majesty, King George V, conferred a series of honours on politicians, civil servants and the military. Same thing, of course, is still happening today, uh, with Charles III doing the same in the beginning of 2024. This particular honours list was quite an interesting one because five sitting Labour MPs, including the War Minister, A.V. Alexander, were unexpectedly given peerages, uh, i.e. so they could sit in the House of Lords. Uh, That meant, of course, that they had to leave their seats in the Commons. This immediately set the uh, hair running that it was a clear signal that there was going to be a general election imminently. The election was actually due by July anyway. The previous one had been held in uh, June 1945. And so there was no way that the uh, government was going to risk five by-elections to fill the vacant seats for those who'd been ennobled. And there was another seat vacant as well. So there would have been a total of six by-elections. So it was a fairly uh, strong signal that a a general election was very likely to be soon, well before the uh, end of the uh, term of the parliament in July 1945. The uh, press welcomed the announcement, especially the uh, A.V. Alexander. Uh, The Guardian, for example, said that he would stiffen a limp front bench in the upper house. Obviously, in uh, in 1950, the majority of the House of Lords was conservative because it was made up of hereditary peers and so Labour had relatively few members. On the 5th of January the Times reported that the BBC had come to an agreement with the three parties, Conservatives, Labour and Liberals, of the terms and conditions for party election broadcasts. And at this point, all the party election broadcasts were done on the radio. Television had been brought back in 1946, but there was no question of a televised party election broadcast, at least at the 1950 election. 
By the 6th of January, the news of the government's intentions had spread sufficiently that even the opposition seemed to be clear what the election date was going to be, and a Tory MP, Sir Herbert Williams, said that he would offer 1 to 50 odds that the election date would be the February the 23rd, uh, and his money was not at any risk. Labour were reported in all the newspapers to have drawn up an emergency election timetable, uh, there were going to be uh, new timetables for the election of new candidates because the 1949 boundary changes had just come into effect and so a load of new constituencies had been created. On the 10th of January, expectations were firming up that Attlee was heading to Sandringham to request a dissolution from the King and the following day the press all led with the official announcement that indeed Attlee had gone to the King and it was agreed that 20, the 23rd of Feb would be the election date. Uh, the reaction was pretty swift. The Guardian, which was a sort of centre, middle-of-the-road newspaper at this point, said that Mr Attlee had made a fair decision in allowing a nice long six-week campaign. Churchill returned home on the 13th. He'd actually been on a painting holiday in Madeira and hadn't expected the early election. He joked at the airport that he'd come back just in case he might be wanted. So, as it became clear that the uh, by the second week of 1950, the, the election was just going to be six weeks away, a row which had been brewing between the sugar industry and the government, especially Herbert Morrison and the uh, Attorney General Sir Hartley Shawcross came to the boil. Tatham Lyle, the UK's leading sugar producer, had learned from the Labour Party's policy documents, which had been released over the course of 1949, um, that they, Tatham Lyle, were going to be facing nationalisation in the next parliament should Labour win the election. And they had decided to run a major PR campaign against these plans. The company created a rather ingenious and lovable cartoon, um, a cartoon character, Mr. Cube, uh, which, if you haven't seen it, is a sort of stick man with the head of a sugar cube, uh, which it placed on all of its packets of sugar, along with a message opposing nationalisation. Additionally, the company paid advertisers to place posters around the country which featured Mr. Cube and his anti-nationalisation message. A controversy emerged as the government threatened Tate and Lyle with prosecution, as it argued that once the election was due, this would become a very serious violation of the new election expenses rules that had been legislated for in the outgoing Parliament. So these limited the amount to which political parties and others could spend at the election, at least in the short campaign, and the Attorney General claimed that since the messages were explicitly political, i.e. against nationalisation, which is a labour key Labour policy, that these would therefore be in violation once the election campaign was underway. There was some debate about whether this was true or not, but on the 12th of Jan, uh, Lord Lyle announced that he would largely climb down and that the Mr Cube posters would be taken down now that the election was due. However, he did refuse to remove Mr Cube from the sugar packages. He said that, that since there was actually no additional cost to the firm in having Mr Cube and the message on the packaging, you know, packaging is packaging, um, that this wouldn't be in breach of uh, the election rules. And he seemed to have got away with this. 
the cement and insurance industries, these were also going to be facing uh, nationalisation in the new parliament, had also reacted with their own poster campaigns, uh, but they also backed down and they said that they would follow suit and uh, comply with the government's interpretation on election expenses. Uh, insurance companies also said the same, although they said that their agents would con uh, continue to counsel customers their opposition to the government's plans. What this row did do was make the, the government look rather bossy and authoritarian. It gave the Conservatives uh, an open goal. Um, so, for example, Sir David Maxwell Fife, a senior Conservative, warned that Shawcross and Morrison had a secret plan to overturn election results on spurious claims of election expense breaches. There was a surprising event on Sunday the 8th of Jan when the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Sir Stafford Cripps, gave a sermon from the pulpit at St Paul's Cathedral. Since Sir Stafford was a high-profile and devout Christian, nobody at the time gave it a second thought. But I would ask you to imagine what on earth would happen now in 2024 if a cabinet minister or another high-profile politician did something similar. Sir Stafford's message was actually fairly harmless. He warned that individuals might lose all sense of spiritual responsibility for the corporate acts of society given the extension of the state's role. Cripps was going to be in the headlines a lot in the first half of January. He popped up a day later on a very different uh, topic. An economic report for 1949 um, stated that production that year had exceeded 30% more than the pre-war 1938 levels. That gave Cripps a very good opportunity to say that the Labour Party had done a good job in raising production. The Chancellor also received some good news from a bounce back in the government's gold and forex reserves, which had been announced to have risen by 263 million. However, Cripps faced a lot of attacks from the press. Uh, the Manchester Guardian seemed to be particularly uh, keen to knock the Chancellor. Um, the paper said that actually his economic management in 1949 hadn't really been very good. It stated that the US, which is often uh, it's said to be the home of reactionary capitalism, had mastered Keynesian economic management in 1949, increasing spending and relaxing monetary policy at the right moment to avoid a slump. Meanwhile, it said that Cripps had failed miserably. He'd, yield, he'd yielded far too early on a stimulus, and his policies had just led to price rises. Uh, Conservative supporting newspapers also uh, laid into Crips. The Telegraph predicted that the gold reserves number were a blip. It said that some of it was due to the fact that the devaluation sum, that gold had come back into the country after the post-devaluation post parity had settled in. And it also pointed out that there'd been an unexpectedly large sale of World War II surplus military equipment, something that was hardly likely to be repeated. The TUC growled in its New Year message. It called for additional taxes on wealth and additional taxes on uh, company profits. They were also furious about uh, company directors such as Sir John Black, who had been paid a tax-free £100,000 bonus by signing a restrictive covenant. In today's wages, that would be the equivalent of about £10 million, so it's not surprising it caused a serious furore in this more egalitarian age. 
the TUC called for a retrospective surtax to be charged on on Sir John and other such uh, company bosses. Another new tax avoidance trick was revealed by the Times, who showed that wealthy families were paying for future private school fees by transferring bonds uh, well to the to the schools in question well ad- in advance of their liabilities. I found this rather amusing, given that um, what. W- the reports in early 2024 ahead of the general election due this year that people are planning to do something very similar in order to avoid the prospect of the Labour Party from introducing VAT on private school bills. So they say uh, history often repeats itself uh, and that seems to be very true in this case. Um, the Mirror attacked uh, what it described as unfair practices in the U.S. The Mirror is uh, a, certainly a very left-wing, uh, that in 1950, and as it is today, a left-wing newspaper and also campaigning newspaper. And during the first half of January, it was very keen to highlight how, as it said, the U.S. businesses were not giving U- U.K. exporters a fair go to sell their wares. It also accused U.S. trade bodies of bad-mouthing British goods, it said that the paper said that uh, the U.S. bodies had called them shoddy and poor quality. Um, meanwhile, there was some uh, liberal activity with uh, William Beveridge, now Lord Beveridge, who was the author of the famous report on welfare, had had attended a debate in Oxford with leading lights uh, of the Labour Party uh, debating equality and democracy. He said that the Labour Party were very wrong to conflate the two. Democracy was perfectly possible without equality. Democracy is about the form and rather the object of the government. So, as the parties limbered up for the election battles, um, some of the speech began to get uh, rather more barbed. Um, Sir Hartley Shawcross, um, the Attorney General, said it was vital that the election was carried out with the minimum vitriol and negativity, um, whilst at the same time implying that that was exactly what the Conservatives and Liberals were like. Um, Lord Balfour attacked the three-faced leadership of Labour, never mind two faces, saying that behind the reasonable the reasonableness of Mr Attlee and the wooing of the middle classes by Mr Morrison lurked Mr Bevan. Balfour said that if Labour won, Mr Bevan was certain to increase his power. As I've said before, Bevan, and I'll say it again, and I'll probably say it till I'm blue in the face, the Conservative bet noir at every election in the 1950s was nigh Bevan. And we're going to be hearing this attack line about Bevan being the real power behind the Labour throne again and again from Conservative spokesmen. Labour's Manny Shinwell also upset the right-wing press, perhaps being number two to Mr Bevan in terms of their um, dislike. He used the phrase Tinker's Cuss, something he'd done three years ago causing similar offence. Now, nearly 75 years on, there doesn't seem to be anything remotely offensive about this turn of phrase, but in 1950 it was clearly considered extremely rude. So next time you take a time machine back to 1950 is definitely a phrase to avoid at all costs. Mr Shinwell's actual remarks, it was at a packed rally, was that he said that the Conservatives couldn't give a tinker's cuss about the consequences of their policies, uh, particularly on the poor and needy. 
He conceded he was actually causing offence by repeating it, but he indicated to the crowd who cheered that he didn't care. So uh, Shinwell quickly joined Nybevan as someone the Conservatives would attack for their spiteful language and malice. Uh, never to miss the opportunity to join in the vitriol, the Liberals also um, issued a stinging attack. Um, this time their target was the trade unions. Um, John Foote, uh, Michael Foote's brother, their Bodmin candidate, accused the other two parties of a conspiracy to silence Liberal voices and prevent uh, Liberal opinion being represented. The newly ennobled Viscount Alexander attacked back, saying that the Liberals' defence plans were complete nonsense. He said that it was absurd to claim that abolishing national service, as the Liberals were planning to do, and also increasing regular soldier numbers to 300,000 and increasing their uh, pay by 30% would produce any savings, as the Liberals were promising that it would. Leading articles on the forthcoming election and what was really at stake were plenty in the second week of January. It's very interesting to have a look through all the newspapers. They all um, made sure that they got their opinions uh, out there. The Times, which uh, declared itself neutral during the campaign, although I'm, I'm not really sure it was, I think it's, it's quite clear it favours the Conservatives, declared on the 11th of Jan there are surprisingly small differences between the programmes of the two chief parties, with the big exception of nationalisation. But it did say that there were important differences in attitude, and that difference in attitude was what the voters would consider to be the most important cleavage. It also said that both sides speak with more than one voice, so this split between the leadership was a, was a problem for both of them. It said it was unclear whether the Conservatives were really proposing a change of policy or a change of management, whereas Labour was more split on ideological lines by whether what the next step should be um, and whether they'd thrown too much meat to the left rather than supplying well-considered policies. The Economist's newspaper's first issue of the year, it's a weekly newspaper, uh, provided some prognostication. It had a look at the, the data, um, uh, which was not particularly uh, plenty at that time. There was only one regular opinion poll, the Gallup's UK affiliate BPO, and that showed a 4% lead for the Conservatives, which looked reasonably good. But it said, on the other hand, the other bits of data over the Parliament, which were the by-elections, had shown relatively small swings away from the government, not nearly enough for the Conservatives to form a majority. The Labour-supporting Daily Mirror was very upbeat. It said that the results of the recent economic survey showed that the UK had outperformed every other war-torn country. It said it proved that Crips and the government were justified in their policies. The Conservative-supporting um, Daily Telegraph was extremely suspicious about the timing of the election. Its city correspondent expected a worsening in the government's budget balance over the next few months. It said that basically the government was making an early dash to the polls in order to avoid a very unpopular budget in April. Um, the Telegraph was also extremely annoyed with the Liberals. Um, the Liberals had announced that they, over the new year, that they intended to field 400 candidates so that they could offer the possibility of forming a new government themselves. 
The paper said that the announcement would have been more appropriately timed for April Fool's Day rather than New Year's Day. And um, without producing too many spoilers, I think the uh, Daily Telegraph had rather a, a point. There was plenty of other foreign and domestic news, although none of which would have a strong bearing on the election campaign itself. It's worth going through what some of these stories were, um, partly out of interest, but also you can see how um, bits and pieces would have distracted uh, people from the election becoming the only story. So later in the campaign, really, almost all the news is about the election, whereas in these first two weeks there were plenty of other events. Um, in the first uh, week of the year, Cunard announced that the retirement and scrapping of the RMS Aquitania uh, that was the last survivor of the pre-World War I four-stacker superliners, um, including, of course, the infamous Titanic, um, and indeed uh, Aquitania's unfortunate sister, the Lusitania, which was sunk by a s submarine. Um, unlike these two, uh, Aquitania had had an extraordinarily successful career, serving for 35 years, which is a very long time for um, a superliner in that era. She'd acted as a troop transport ship in both wars and was sadly uh, missed by the public. That was cl clearly quite a qu quite an interesting thing, although Aquitania is, is far less um, famous now in uh, 2024 than uh, Titanic or Lusitania. At the time, it was uh, considered a much more um, important thing. Uh, there was also a major tragedy in the River Thames. On the 11th of January, when a Navy submarine, the Truculent, collided with a ship and sunk and it claimed the lives of 65 men uh, although the death toll wasn't confirmed until the 14th so throughout january the press were extremely interested in this story uh, there were the uh, stories of the lucky few who escaped and the, the sort of amazing um, dice with death uh, and there was also then the story of the submarine's captain who was quickly accused of negligence and it, it was um, court-martialed the UK was also amongst the first nations to recognise the PRC, the People's Republic of China. Uh, Mao Zedong very much won the civil war in China over the course of 1949, and the British government uh, bowed to the inevitable much earlier than many other powers and recognised uh, the communist PRC as the government of China rather than the um, Chiang Kai-shek regime, which had moved to Taiwan. Um, Surprisingly, it didn't seem to attract much controversy, although the Americans didn't actually follow suit until the 1970s. Um, meanwhile, the Soviet Union reinstated the recently abolished death penalty, saying that their leader, all-round Mr. Nice Guy Joseph Stalin, had been moved by the pleas of workers, peasants and the leaders of national republics, how moving, to have brought it back. Uh, meanwhile, strikes and chaos were reported in Italy after six workers had been killed as a sit-in. Uh, the Greek uh, government collapsed with the uh, king announcing that the country would have its own snap elections. Um, as we move through the 1950s, we'll have communist strikes in Italy and France and elections in Greece. It does become something of a pattern. Um, there were also some the usual sort of the tabloids were interested in various human interest stories. Um, the Wizard of Oz himself, the actor who played uh, the character in the 1939 movie, died at the beginning of the year and there were some tributes to him. 
Uh, finally, uh, Lord Justice Asquith, uh, son of the former Prime Minister, uh, strongly criticised those um, who had written about January 1950 being half the halfway point through the 20th century. He insisted, quite rightly, that the moment would not come until December the 31st, 1950. One imagines what on earth he would have made of the last few weeks of 1999. So for the second half of this episode, I would like to give a quick tour of the who's who of the Labour Party. Um, before I begin, I think it's worth pointing out, actually, for both parties, uh, that there's a huge elephant in the room, um, which is that all the main characters in this are going to be male. Um, while each of the parties does make sure that one radio broadcast has a female speaker, there were no women in either party's cabinet or shadow cabinet at the point of, of the election. Uh, in fairness, the Attlee Labour government had had a female cabinet minister, uh, Ellen Wilkinson, but she died in 1947 and, uh, and there hadn't been a, a replacement. Uh, and actually, looking forward, the Conservative speaker, um, Florence Horsburgh, later actually became a cabinet minister as well. Uh, but at the point of the election, um, there are very few uh, female speakers. Um, the party leaders uh, were also much older than today's party leaders. So on the 1st of January 1950, um, Attlee was actually two days shy of his 67th birthday. Chancellor of the Exchequer, Cripps, was 60. On the other side, um, Churchill was 75, and whilst there wasn't actually a, an official shadow chancellor, uh, Sir John Anderson, who was the main Conservative spokesman on uh, the Treasury, was 67. If you compare that to the 1st of January 2024, uh, today's equivalent, you've got Rishi Sunak, 43, Jeremy Hunt, 57, Keir Starmer, 61, and Rachel Reeves, 44. And you do find um, generally politicians at the senior level tend to be older than they are in today's UK, um, although certainly not today's US. Uh, but that's a, another um, another side. Um, on the Labour side, I've already um, briefly mentioned uh, some of the leading lights. I'll say more about Attlee in a moment. Um, the main figures were going to be Attlee, Morrison, Cripps, uh, Ernest Bevan and Aniron Bevan. Um, spelt slightly differently and sometimes confused but uh, if, if you see and hear them there's, there's certainly no confusion. Um, one thing I did find, um, the more I researched uh, this period, um, was how much I, I liked Clement Attlee. Um, he comes across as extremely decent and likeable. Uh, one of the nicest things is the broadcast in 1955 with him and his wife in a sort of mocked-up version of their house in, in Buckinghamshire. Um, his rhetoric, although it's, he's occasionally sharp when he responds to Sh Churchill, is always much more measured and um, he's very rarely vitriolic and unpleasant. Um, and the you know the contrast between Churchill's rather flamboyant style uh, and extrovert personality, and Attlee's more uh, slightly shy personality is 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 very uh, apparent. Um, I think there's some rather some unfair popular culture. I think has been rather unfair. If you watched Netflix, uh, The Crown, um, which I like very much. I mean, I'm not don't want to knock it but there are some um, perhaps some unfair 
uh, portrayals. You hear Churchill crack the joke that an empty taxi uh, pulled up at Whitehall and Mr Attlee got out. It's a sort of favourite criticism, really, that Attlee was dull and ineffective. Um, but I don't think that it's uh, reflected with uh, what the people thought at the time. Uh, they clearly liked the Prime Minister. Um, his recent biographer, Michael Jago, um, argues that despite his gentle, soft-spoken style, he had an extremely strong determination and he was a very good leader. His preference was for more of a chairman style of leadership, uh, perhaps what prime ministerial leadership is supposed to be in contrast to the more executive presidential style of today's prime ministers. So, um, whilst mean-minded personal attacks implying that Attlee was a dull and boring, that clearly was not going to go anywhere and not going to work, you can see where the Conservatives did feel that they were on more productive ground, uh, and that was by trying to portray Attlee's sort of more cautious leadership style as being weak, and weak in the face of the threat uh, that they were keen to portray came from Bevan and uh, an Iron Bevan and uh, some of his friends on the left of the party. So I already mentioned the uh, speech by Lord Balfour. It's absolutely typical. We're going to hear many more of these. And uh, the assertion was that Attlee was simply not capable of standing up to Bevan. Um, now again, this is, it looks extremely um, unfair. Um, but it is something that's going to keep coming up and is going to be um, raised and the public is going to have to make a decision about whether it believes this or not. So at this point, a little bit more about uh, Attlee himself. He was born into an upper middle class family and he was privately educated at a school called Haleybury. And uh, he was actually converted to socialism um, in, in early adulthood. He worked um, voluntarily in the East End of London. Uh, and having seen some of the poverty that uh, in this area, um, he moved very much, his politics moved very much to the left. He'd become the leader of the Labour Party in 1935. Uh, he served as um, Deputy Prime Minister during World War II, when the two parties had come um, to an agreement for a coalition. So he'd served as Winston Churchill's deputy. And then, of course, as I had mentioned in the previous episode, he'd won a landslide election at the 1945 election. After the election results were announced, there had been some machinations with, by the deputy leader, Herbert Morrison, who really felt that he ought to lead, be, lead the new government. He thought he'd be a better leader. Um, but um, Attlee was urged by Ernie Bevan and others to go to the palace and have none of this nonsense. Um, the way that Attlee uh, describes um, he, taking office is, is, is just so sweet. He, um, he writes that his wife, Violet, had driven, to him, uh, driven him to the palace, dropped him off, where he'd accepted to form uh, a, a, a government. Then, after a victory rally at Westminster Central Hall and looking in at the Fabian Society, he returned home to Stanmore after an exciting day. Um, contrast that with the sort of grandiose ceremonies of other leaders coming to office. Um, whether or not she intended it to be grandiose, you have Mrs Thatcher quoting Francis of Assisi in the 1979 election. 
And in the 1997 election, you have all the flag wavers as uh, uh, those uh, the accompanying uh, Tony Blair and his family as they walk up Downing Street. Um, a recurring theme that we're going to hear at these elections is that Mrs. Attlee is not afraid to get behind the wheel um, at the election. She drives Clem around the country and there's, there's plenty more to be said. Looking a little bit more about uh, Labour's leadership at the time of the 1950 election, it's very much a mix ideologically and it's also very much a mixture in terms of background. There are a number of genuinely working-class um, cabinet ministers. Um, A.V. Alexander, Ernie Bevan and Nye Bevan uh, were all undoubtedly working-class. Uh, the former two had been trade unionists um, and the latter had been from a mining family in South Wales. On the other hand, you've got um, Dalton, Cripps and Hugh Gateskill. Um, Gateskill's the Chancellor later. Um, so those are the three chancellors of the uh, Attlee government. They were all privately educated. Um, Dalton has eaten, um, and um, they'd been converted to socialism or social democracy, if you prefer, later on in life. Um, Cripps had been uh, once amongst the highest earning barristers in London. Another Etonian was John Strachey, the food minister, um, who we'll hear more about. On the other hand, you've got then got the middle class Herbert Morrison. Um, he came to prominence through local government. He was Labour's leader on the London County Council, the so-called LCC, um, and had uh, taken power in the uh, mid-1930s. There wasn't actually any obvious correlation between background and ideology. So if, if you think that those from working class backgrounds were going to be more, um, uh, more left-wing than those... Um, from who were who'd been privately educated, um, then you're sorely mistaken. So, for in fact, um, to some extent, it might even have been the other way around. Um, the working class examples, Bevan and Alexander, um, were perhaps the most moderate, really, in 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 uh, Labour's senior leadership. Um, although, on the other hand, I think there is a, a correlation between the ones who had been trade union leaders and being more moderate. So. Um, Ernie Bevan, um, as a trade union leader in the uh, Transport and General Workers Union, was interested in collective bargaining to make his uh, union members uh, better off. So he was he was more of a, a pragmatist than somebody who was an, a, a, an ide ideological. So perhaps there was a correlation between the route that the um, that the said person had come into office. There was another th uh, strand. A in the last episode, I mentioned the difference between perhaps doctrinaire socialism and social democracy. But there is another strand, which is radical or left-wing liberals. Um, some of them were big L liberals who had given up on their old party or, or found it too moderate for their tastes. Um, but it's actually sometimes forgotten that it's possible to come from a liberal tradition and actually be as left-wing as a hardcore uh, socialist, um, or certainly as a, a social democrat, in terms of actual practical bread and butter. There's a different ideological starting point, um, that the liberal starting point is with the individual and their freedom too, rather than the other two, which um, sort of their starting point is perhaps state, society, or a class point of view. 
Um, in my view, um, the philosopher uh, Bertrand Russell, Earl Russell, although he's self-ID'd as a socialist, he, he talks about the fact that he's a socialist, um, I would argue that he's a textbook example as, of somebody coming from a liberal tradition. The sort of very left-wing uh, liberalism of, say, someone like uh, John Rawls, um, adopting socialist policies, um, but uh, whilst maintaining a very clear philosophical framework based on the individual. So like various shades of social democrats and democratic socialists, um, these radical liberals uh, could vary from the moderates, so Sir Hartley Shortcross, but also uh, firebrands on the left, uh, perhaps such as Michael Foote. The Foote family were very much uh, um, liberals. So you've, you, you've got Dingle Foote, who is uh, Michael Foote's older brother, who is a liberal who eventually joins Labour. Um, there are a number of other um, ex-Big L liberals um, who joined the Labour Party for sort of more pragmatic reasons. They were sort of generally on the left. Um, and uh, the largest components of these was, was often in the House of Lords. Um, amongst these aristocrats serving in Attlee's government includes Frank Pakenham, Lord Pakenham, who's another textbook example, really, of a left-wing uh, radical liberal. Um, to those of us who remember the 1990s, um, Pakenham is much better remembered as the extremely aged, aged uh, Earl of Longford, Lord Longford, uh, who by the 1990s was sort of portrayed in the popular media as this kind of crazy, naive old crank whose obsession in life was to release um, then one of the UK's most notorious serial killers, the Moors murderer, Myra Hindley. So it's really quite difficult for me not to laugh, um, you know, um, when, when I see Frank Pakenham as a, as a cabinet minister. Um, I, I can remember one of my grandmother's friends saying, that old Lord Longford, he's nuts. Yet Pakenham, as he was, uh, was, he was Minister for Civil Aviation at the point of the 1950 election. And later he was First Lord of the Admiralty. And it, seemed, it seems quite extraordinary. One final point to make on Labour's leaderships was that two of the most famous uh, in the cabinet, Cripps and uh, Bevan, Ernie Bevan, um, were seriously ill, and they were probably both aware that they, as Cripps certainly would have been aware, that uh, they didn't really have much longer to live. Um, Cripps had, had cancer, he'd quietly had surgery in Switzerland in 1949, and although he survived until 1952, I think he would have known that um, it, it, he, he didn't have long. I mean, there was no, the cancer treatments were not as they are today. Uh, the almost 70-year-old Foreign Secretary, Ernie Bevan, uh, was having increasing problems with his heart. Uh, and he died uh, the next year in 1951. Uh, but neither of them were willing to give up the fight. Uh, they were extremely keen to do their utmost to get Labour re-elected. Uh, uh, they, were, they were absolutely passionate. There was going to be no um, early retirement. So that's the end of this episode. Um, it's the first look at the 1950 elections. I really do hope you enjoyed it. So next week I am going to have a look at the release of the manifestos, the party's manifestos, uh, and, and have a deep dive into actually what the parties propose. I'm also going to give my first red card of the election uh, for a violation of Godwin's law. 
that is, for those who don't know Godwin's Law, that you shouldn't compare democratic opponents with a certain vile bohemian corporal and his, uh, his party. But we'll say no more. Um, uh, so I hope, uh, once again, I hope you've enjoyed it. Um, thank you very much for listening. Uh, if you did enjoy it, uh, please feel free to tweet it or share it or leave a five-star review, hopefully, uh, on, um, on one of the platforms. And if you, didn't, uh, if you didn't enjoy it, well, thank you very much for listening anyway. And uh, well done for getting to the end. <laughs>